You are listening to The Mend Podcast. I'm Joe Roeder, and I spend my life on the water and in the field. As a fly fishing guide and outfitter, I have spent decades personally honing my skills and helping other people improve theirs. My goal is to help listeners learn from my mistakes and successes. This podcast is brought to you by Red's Fly Shop, the best place to get outfitted for your next big adventure. Here we are, the Men Podcast, back doing it again. It is January 14th. It's a Saturday. I'm at home here this morning. I want to knock out a podcast because I got some really great questions and some great feedback. So I want to knock out some of these questions for you, uh, but it is a little chaotic here at the Rotor Household on a Saturday morning. So if you hear a little background noise, don't be too distracted. So I uh, got back from Boise this last week. That was an absolutely awesome event. Thanks uh, to everybody that I met there, saw there, and came to both the educational seminars that I was doing and the casting stuff. And uh, that was an awesome turnout. And I was just shocked at how many people uh, bumped, bumped into that I knew and were customers of Reds as well. So... If you live on the other side of the country, you've got some fly fishing shows coming up this winter. Uh, I won't be going uh, any further than Boise this year, and I don't think I'll make it to, to Portland. But anyway, get to your local fly fishing show. That's when like uh, a lot of inspiration happens. You can get to some of the educational stuff, and uh, man, it was just so, so fun getting together with a lot of the other guides and outfitters, um, all those, you know, some might consider us a in indirect competitor. We're still a competitor of some sorts, and gosh, there's just none of that ego or attitude or anything. So it was really cool uh, hanging out with a lot of the guides, outfitters, and other fly shops and retailers at that event. Uh, I just had so much fun, and post pandemic, it was really nice to be able to just get together uh, with other folks. So. Before I jump into uh, question and answer stuff, uh, just catching up on what's going on at Reds. Uh, Reds is the reason I do this podcast, and I uh, always want to kind of update you on what's going on there. So fishing conditions-wise, uh, we got a big warm wet weather system that hit the West Coast. You probably heard what's going on in California. It's awful. There's flooding kind of throughout the Pacific Northwest, but we're on the east side of the Cascades where we are, so it's we're kind of between the mountains and the desert, and so we haven't had those issues here. But the river shot up yesterday. Yesterday morning it was looking pretty good, and then by about midday it was pretty dirty. Uh, we actually we had one guide out yesterday, and uh, he did okay. He scratched a day out of it. And then a couple of guys uh, from the shop that were on days off went out and scratched a, a little day out of it as well. By no means amazing fishing, but look for that flow pattern when a river swells up from rain or a sudden snow melt, really try to look for it on kind of that hump and drop on the flow curve. And naturally, the upper reaches of those of the rivers will, will rebound and come back into shape first. So sometimes when you're planning a day, if you drive 20 or 30 miles upstream, that might be, it might be better on the recovery on the back end of a, a, a river, a swell up like that than if you're in that lower portion of it. Inversely, on a rise, the lower portion of the river will generally, um, there will just be a delay and it generally takes that sudden spike of water a little bit more gracefully 
than the upper reaches. So we, we do that a lot on the Click Attack River. Our steelhead guides are very good at that. For those that aren't familiar with that river system, the Klickitat runs off of Mount Adams, which is our southernmost volcano in the Washington Cascades. It's a steep drainage pattern. It runs off fast, swift. It blows out quick, but it recovers quick. And so a lot of times we'll have very different fishing uh, in conditions in one stretch versus another based on or just our willingness to, to drive around the river and reposition ourselves. So that's going on conditions-wise, but the warming trend is a very, very good thing. Um, I'm personally leaving for Patagonia in about a week. I haven't packed a thing yet. Been helping everybody else get their flies, their gear dialed in. So this next week, I'll probably do a podcast just as I'm leaving, and it will be kind of more about trout tackle than just fishing in Patagonia because I know that trip trip is just frankly out of reach uh, for most. Um, the, the reason I get to go is I'm, I put trips together and I get to go as a host and trip coordinator. So that's uh, what makes it achievable for me. But I think there's a lot to be learned um, about just a little travel management, tackle management, making the good use out of your time that I think is applicable to any time you get in a car or a plane and go do some fishing. So I'll do a podcast on gear and kind of gear prep uh, maybe Wednesday or Thursday, just before I leave, I'll do that. It may be a short one, uh, as I've got some other chores to do, but yeah, leaving for, uh, for Chile on, uh, on this upcoming Friday. And, uh, yeah, really looking forward to that, but also I've got a lot to do between now and then. Um, uh, like most, like most anglers, gotta get my chores done. Our 2024 travel schedule is up on the web. So if you're thinking about a trip, a big trip, get on a plane type trip. I can't recommend enough that you do the hosted option and go with a planned group for so many reasons. One, we've done the research for you. We're going to answer your questions, do a great job planning it, handle all the wire transfers and payments, uh, and just make sure that everything is efficient and safe and well-coordinated, that you, you get rotated in with single anglers that have some shared values or interests based on how they want to spend their time and what species they want to pursue. So anyway, 2024 and some of the 2025 schedule is up. 2023 is like 100% full uh, all of our trips this year, except my rooster fish trip to Baja. So if you're looking to go rooster fish fishing that last week of June, I personally have some space in the trip I'm planning. So uh, anyway, consider that we've got a major remodel going on uh, the Canyon River Grill restaurant, which is our restaurant at Red's. So the outdoor dining is going to be enhanced for this upcoming year. We're getting this whole garage door system. So when the weather's bad, we can close the garage doors. And uh, yeah, your your beer won't get blown over when we get those big 40 mile an hour canyon, <laughs> canyon gusts of wind. And we're protected from the rain and the elements a little bit better uh, in the event we have some some weather events. So we're getting year-round dining where uh, our outdoor dining historically was, but we've still got like these glass roll-up garage doors that are going to be installed. So it's going to be actually really, uh, really, really cool. So that remodel's going, and then we we did a whole big uh, kind of reworking of the shop floor, uh, which has been pretty cool. So. Bobby's been in charge of that, and um, that's looking pretty good. A couple of other little updates. If you're looking for a saltwater rod, the new Sage R8 saltwater rod has been revealed. The big reveal is over. 
So the rods are, they're going to go on sale. Um, they've already been announced on the website and stuff, but they'll actually be ready to ship uh, this upcoming week. So we have a good inventory of those. If you're looking for a new saltwater rod, you're a big sage rod fan, you want a rod that's easy to cast at close range, long range, does everything in between. It's a very versatile rod, far better than Sage's predecessor to that, which was called their Salt HD, which I'd, I I wasn't a huge fan of. When it first came out, it was it may be one of the better rods out there, and then they just I think they just got beat by their competitors. Um, people were making rods that were just so much more castable, but. The R8 casts great, wonderful casting rod, not unpleasant. You know, nobody's going to describe this as a broomstick. It's going to um, give you a lot of feedback all the way down through your hand, uh, all the way into the butt section where you can actually feel that rod flex and kind of figure out what it's doing from cast to cast. So that's their new Sage R8 Saltwater. And uh, yeah, that, by the time you listen to this, likely it'll be available. It'll go up online on the 17th. Uh, and if you want to get kind of in line for pre-order, there's a deal where you can say, email me when available. Um, I had uh, an angler who wanted, uh, who wants seven of those. Uh, he wants pretty much the whole lineup from top to bottom. So some people are pretty excited about this. But if you're looking at to invest in you know, long-term high-end rod that you're going to be very happy with, that is the newest, latest, greatest uh, saltwater rod out there. That's the Sage R8 Salt. Uh, Christmas Island update. Christmas Island's looking pretty good. Not officially like planes operating there now, but they had some issues that they needed to resolve. Uh, apparently the runway had some damage to it, just had become dilapidated, hadn't been maintained. And their fire truck had some issues that the fire truck hadn't been maintained. So there wasn't um, appropriate emergency services available for the airlines, but it looks like they are got those remedied. And we have uh, our first group scheduled to go in April to Christmas Island, it's going to be the Wild West. It's going to be like Christmas Island of the 1980s uh, when that place opens back up. So it's not going to be quite as polished as it had become uh, the last few years, as polished as Christmas Island can get. So it might be a hell of an experience. Um, we have a couple of rods open for the April trip, and I think I've got one spot open for my May trip. Uh, I said all of our 2023 are full. I excluded Christmas Island from that because... As soon as that country starts rolling, all those trips are going to be full. Once it officially opens and that first flight goes, they'll all be full. So uh, I'm, I'm going in May. I am really looking forward to that, needless to say. So that's kind of some of the news. Oh, yeah. So I had a meeting, kind of met, like planning our 2023 class schedule uh, for this upcoming year. And a lot of you know Jason or you've seen Jason on a few of our Instagrams and stuff. He does most of our education stuff here. The guy is just, he's so good at bringing the most out of anglers uh, that he works with and coaches. And he heads up our university program here. But a new thing, a lot of new things for this upcoming year. But we believe in trying to help anglers become the best that they can. And it's been an effective business model for us. But one thing we're going to do is a lot of group lessons. And that's going to drive the cost way down to come here some and come learn from somebody like me or Jason, Bobby or Steve or some of our top guides even where we can do these kind of short format group lessons where we teach a specific thing uh, and it yeah it just makes it very affordable for anybody who wants to come get some FaceTime uh, from a pro and learn voice to voice face to face some of these strategies, whether it's uh, whether it's just nymphing tactics, we'll run a class at Reds in a group format, where it's just us teaching you guys 
And then you can go divide and conquer the remainder of the day, whether it's spay fishing or euro nymphing or just indicator nymphing in the springtime, hopper dropper techniques and strategies that will be very low cost uh, and allow us to get in front of a few more people. I'm really looking forward to it because it's going to allow me, rather than having to dedicate you know a whole a whole day or half a day to just a few anglers, I can actually get in front of 10, 15, or 20 anglers at a time and uh, and download what I know and then then you have the luxury of being able to head straight to the river that day. So the group format is going to be uh, great for us for this upcoming uh, year. Okay, so it kind of covers the news stuff. Uh, so I'm going to do questions and answers, and I've got a couple of like non-related questions uh, that came into my email inbox, and I flag those. If they come in as questions for the podcast, your questions will get answered. Uh, I promise you, just email me at joe at redsflyshop.com and I will get to your questions. So I'm going to hit a couple of base questions and then we're going to hit questions that are very Yakima River specific, but I'm going to make sure they are applicable to other destinations. The Yakima is much like a lot of the rivers that you're going to fish and the same trout challenges that you're up against. So uh, without further ado, let's get into it. Eric F. He uh, asked, it was a, this is a gear question and he is shopping for a new kind of gear or uh, kit bag, like a home base bag and a home base bag or a gear bag is to me is going to be for the average angler and non guide, let's say that doesn't need 8 billion flies in there. This is going to house reels. It's going to house your extra sunglasses. It might have a, um, all of your gear in there. It might have your bass flies. It might have your trout flies and everything. And what he was asking is the cut bank gear bag from Fish Pond big enough? And my an- my short answer is it should be. Uh, flies, you know, we can overfly ourselves really, really easy. I prefer to buy fresh flies constantly rather than big bulk volumes of flies. I'll get flies all the time. I'll just get two flies here, six flies there. Always getting fresh flies flashier materials, glossier materials. I think flies have a real life expectancy to them that's you know only a couple of seasons long. Uh, so I'm constantly, I would rather circulate my flies frequently than carry big giant Plano boxes full of flies. I give my extra flies to my kids and then other folks around the shop or beginners uh, and then they can use kind of my, my, my stuff that's been cold. So I don't carry a bazillion flies. So the Cutbank gear bag, is it should be big enough. It's big enough for me. That's what I run most of my guide trips out of. But then I store my most of my reels in another container. Uh, so the answer, short answer is yes. The Fishpond Cutbank gear bag, it's really well thought out. It's not a super jumbo model. If you run out of space for your reels, get another reel container and then put your reels in a very specific spot that are outside of it. There's no reason, you know, a big spay reel or a saltwater reel or steelhead or salmon, whatever your your uh, your extra gear is that's not going to a destination. But there's no reason you can't store that in a real case at home. And then that uh, cut bank is nice because you can roll up a packable rain jacket or something like that and actually shove it inside in that space where the reels were. So short answer is it should be. My cut bank is pretty much worn out. Uh I could probably send it into Fish Pond to get it repaired, but what I'll probably do is repurpose it and just put reels or something like that in it because some of the shoulder straps and stuff are broken off. And then I'm going to get a new one for actually guiding uh, because a couple of the things broke off, which is expected after about five years of use on it. So it's been a great product. I would uh, buy the same exact thing uh, over again. Uh, so there's a testament to 
how happy I've been. Uh, Brian F. writes in, and uh, Brian says, what is the best way to set the hook down on a downstream presentation? So that could be feeding a dry fly downstream, indicator nymph, it could be a euro nymph, it could be a streamer, spay fishing, whatever it happens to be. Generally, if the if the fish is downstream from you, I'm always going to try to set low on that downstream side. And the, the determining factor is going to be what is my risk if I throw that fly up over my shoulder? Is it going to go in a tree? And so that's kind of pre-programmed in with after thousands of hook sets where I snagged trees or tangled and then had to go climb the tree or lose my fly or dig my fly out of the tree. That is uh, going to be the biggest determining factor on kind of the intensity of the hook set, the angle that I have. And if I'm standing right up in the brush and, and I'm tight to the bushes, I, I'll go ahead and set it upstream. I don't mind doing that. Generally, if I set the hook on, say, say I'm on river right. So I'm, if, if you're looking downstream, I'm standing on the right side and a fish bites. I will set the hook on what would be my left shoulder or upstream. If I'm standing tight to the brush and I, my rod tip's either going to hit some bushes or it's going to throw the fly in the brush, but I will be very slow and almost lazy about the hook set so that I can initiate uh, a little bit of purchase on the fish. And then when the fish digs down and turns its body, then I can really jam the hook home. So it'll be like kind of a lollygagging hook set if I set on the upstream side. But I'll do that if there's a risk to throwing my fly up in the tree. But other than that, I'm just jam jabbing the fly down to the right. And I'll, I'll do it very, very low so that my setup stays in the water if there's a risk of me uh, throwing it up in the tree. But uh, if there's no risk of me throwing it up in the tree, I'm in the open, I'm out in a gravel bar or standing mid-river, I'll, I'll, I'll pick it up over my right shoulder to 45 degree with enough intensity that that fly will probably just come right out of the water. So... Hopefully that helps. The only time I'm setting upstream is if there's a risk of uh, my fly uh, going in the tree. Okay, so yeah, very good questions. Again, email me joe at redsflyshop.com and just put podcast question in the headline and I will uh, answer it. All right, the next series of questions, there's a bunch of them and uh, these are the ones that are written very specifically about the, the amazing Yakima River, uh, which is I live minutes from the shoreline and our shop is on the river. So it's my home water. And these are going to be, we'll, we'll apply this use to, to all rivers, but Steve Newman writes in and says, for the average angler that wants to fish the Yakima in a variety of ways, in a variety of techniques, what rods, weight, and type are best, and what are the specific fly lines you recommend for each setup? It's a great question because um, the way he words that, I think he's trying to just maximize efficiency because you could say, well, you should have a six weight for this and a three weight for that and a five weight for, for this type of day at a Euro rod, a trout spay, and on and on. I mean, I could, I could sell somebody a lot of rods if you wanted to be ultimately prepared. But if I were, if I were going to be uh, an angler on a western river and I had home water where I was going to fish there you know, year-round and fish frequently... The number one rod that I'm going to use most of the time is going to be a, a fast action, nine foot five weight with a floating line. Uh, you know, today that's going to be, you know, for me, it'd be a Sage R8, probably, you know, that's a very universal rod. Uh, I'm going to throw a floating line on there, a Scientific Angler's Amplitude Infinity. That line will do a little bit of everything from nymph fishing with an indicator to streamers to big dries and hopper droppers. We deal with tremendous amounts of wind here. 
being on the foot of the Cascades, I mean, our wind absolutely rips. It's like, yeah, it, it helps. I mean, we've got wind farms within sight here. So consistent wind, and I want a fast action rod with a weight forward line. Now, if I'm maximizing, because I can do a variety of things with that. I can do almost everything. In fact, if I wanted to turn it into a sink tip system, I could loop to loop a poly leader on the end of that rod line, and I could have a sinking line for those cold weather or fringe months where I want to swing you know, small streamers or, or, or fish buggers in the back eddies. I could do a lot of things with a 9-foot 5-weight. So I'm just going to stay there uh, for most applications. Uh, of course, I would love to have a nine foot three weight or an eight and a half foot three weight for my hatch rod, so that I can, you know, I can fish caddis and things like that. Of course, that would be great. But I'm going to say my baseline is a nine foot five weight floating line. Uh, if I'm serious about fishing in the fall and winter, an integrated sink tip system, so spare spool with the sink tip system, is going to be really handy. Because I'm going to want to swing flies, uh, you know, I could I, I could interject here and say, yeah, you should have a trout spay rod for swinging flies in the fall, winter, and spring. You don't have to have that. You can certainly do that with a single-handed nine-foot five-weight. That's not a problem. So an integrated sink tip line would be really, really handy for fall, winter, spring uh, sink tip fishing. Our river is so high and swift during the summer that we're if we're fishing streamers in the summer, we're pounding them up under the cut banks from a boat on a floating line. So when I say don't need it during the summer, that's it's primarily a river flow thing. But yeah, a spare spool with an integrated sink tip, and then I've got pretty much everything covered with one rod. That would be a baseline for me if I was going to say you got X budget or you can own so many rods. That's my program there. And then um, the, the other rod that I would say that for fishing the Yakima, I really want to have a Euro rod. I think that if you're going to be a do-it-yourself angler, fishing on foot, fishing the same water that, that these guides are pressuring, and they're very good at rowing boats and putting people into fishing boats, you have a distinct and profound advantage with a Euro rod fishing on foot because you can pick water apart that they just, they're not going to do a very good job of just floating by, throwing you know indicators or hopper droppers at the bank. So it gives you an advantage. So I'm definitely going to have a Euro rod no matter where I'm at in the country. And if, if the dry fly fishing is possible, I will throw dries. I would much prefer to do that if available, but I also want to stick some trout. So I'm going like uh, 10.5 foot uh, to 11. Rod length isn't that important, but you know if I was choosing one, it'd be my Thomas and Thomas Contact 2 2109. 10 foot 9 inch, 2 weight. Uh, would be it. Uh, follow. There's a lot of rods. I have a bunch of your rods. I've got about seven or eight of them. So it's hard to choose one, but I'd probably go with that TNT Contact Two Two Weight. I can, I can, I can. I know what's going on with that rod on the end of my line. It's very sensitive. So uh, this is a great question. But that that would be my rod uh, set. If I was a two rod man, uh, that would be it. So. What is a high next question? What is a high level way to think about flies to use on the Yakima year round? For example, what months are best to nymph, streamer, dry fly, terrestrial fish within each of those categories? What are the best flies? So that's a huge question to unpack. But with flies, flies are only as good as if you know what to do with them. Um, so meaning, like 
if you buy a real specific caddis emerger, if you're not good at fishing it, you don't, you're not good at seeing it on the water, you, you, you haven't had success with it, you're probably better off with just a really good quality elk hair caddis. Uh, so flies, flies are, we sell more flies than any shop in the country. I'll guarantee you that. Our warehouse, if you've ever seen a glimpse of our warehouse, we have like a Dewey Decimal system for flies. Like we have flies and we have the best flies. I don't use all the flies we sell in the shop. It's just not possible. I am I, the flies I use. I want to be very confident in knowing how fast do they sink, um, how do they float, what do they look like on the surface, and how to present them. Like some flies do really well when you splat them down in front of the fish, and they can see them. Other flies do really well on a long, delicate drift. So, I think with flies, you want to make sure that you're buying really good flies, and you understand how they float and how they work, because this. I mean, the number of hatches that we have is very complicated because we fish year-round here. And so the same flies I'm using now are definitely going to be different. But I'm going to rattle off a few patterns. Number one, year-round, stonefly nymphs. We have about, I think, seven different species of stoneflies on this river. There's always going to be stoneflies from, from itty-bitty like size, you know, 14 or 16 all the way on up to number fours uh, living in this river year-round. Um, so stoneflies are a, a base supply, uh, and then any of the tungsten jig head nymphs sizes, you know, 20 through 14 are going to be a good idea with an emphasis on number 16 on average. Those trout are going to be forging. And some of these flies, I mean, they're little attractors. They're blue. They've got orange butts. They've got pink butts. And we're really appealing to a fish's just predatory instinct with a lot of these you know, micro, we'll just say micro jigs. I mean, micro, micro jigs. Um, but like a rose's violet tag, for instance, it's got a little purple bud on it. It's got a silver bead. It's got a really good CDC hackle, which is going to have some movement and some bubble properties. The the trout aren't preying on that because it's a specific, you know, species of, of bug. But there there's a variety of flies that you could fish year round. But the next layer to that question, what, what months are best to nymph, streamer, dry fly, or terrestrial fish? Dry fly fishing is going to start uh, probably the second week of March with the Squala Stonefly Hatch. Very seldom do we have consistent mid-rises during the winter time, so let's just rule out winter. Say we start dry fly fishing in March um, with afternoons being the best um, in March, say from like 1 o'clock or 2 o'clock on. There's going to be about two hours in March that is doable for dries. And then we start to get March rounds and caddis and blue wings and stuff like that. But the spring is going to be very limited on dry fly fishing opportunities. It's all going to be hatch oriented. Our best dry fly fishing of the year is happening July, August, September, and it's going to be technical terrestrial fishing. Um, so, meaning those fish are going to be buried in structure. We're going to be coaxing them out of the sticks, out of the grass, off the banks, and that's when the Yakima is at its most unique and best. So, dry fly, we're going summertime. Nymphing, we're probably going springtime. We're probably going March, you know, March through May, and then May June's kind of a weird month because we're transitioning into summer, where the the water can be really high. When I say it's a weird month, it can be really hot out, but the water is still very very cold for us because we're we're suffering snow melt still at that time. So um, it, it's just kind of weird. It feels like it should be summer. The water's still very cold. But we're transitioning into that terrestrial season uh, in late May, June. 
And then uh, fall time is great for little micro-nymphing, um, little tiny blooming olives, number 20s, itty-bitties, little stuff. The water is very low. So it's low point of the year in the fall, and it's very, very clear. So that's a really great time for that kind of that micro-nymphing game. And then our streamer fishing is is pretty good year-round. Uh, probably my favorite time for streamer fishing is going to be that first hard freeze in the fall, that first week in November, uh, specifically because um, I like to swing on a tight line on foot uh, with sink, you know, light sink tips and and smaller streamers because I just love that tight you know connection on the grab when my feet are planted and I'm, everything's dead still, and then just like being it's like being shocked by an electric fence. It's just such a jolt, you know, when those fish pick it up. So I personally like that time of year, but chucking and ducking streamers out of a drift boat. Um, during the springtime, like mid-February through like early March, you know, like that first few weeks pre-spawn, man, that can be a really good time to pitch big streamers from the drift boat. Our rainbows are pre-spawned and a lot of those big males be pretty aggressive. So you'll get a lot of that chasing action and we can do it on a floating line, just chucking them up against the cut banks. So that's a pretty good time if you're, you know, you're on a boat, you want to do it that way is that early, early springtime frame. So as far as flies go, I like the Jiggy Pats from Fulling Mills to go to any of the Roses, uh, Jig Head series, uh, flies. As far as streamers go, I'm liking Sculptzilla still. I like uh, uh, I like a Loop Sculpin. Um, I like a Meat Sweats. I like a Jiggy Fry on my Euro Rod. Yeah, there's so many flies. I can't. I can't even begin to name name all the flies uh, that that I would prefer for those months. But hopefully, some of that inf- other information you can unpack it, and it's helpful. Uh, next question: When is the Yakima River most suited for wading, and what CFS should you target? So, um, most rivers will go through a flow cycle. So, no matter where you live, you're going to have this pre-runoff time that's going to be like if you get warming trends in January, February, uh, in March. Those are going to be great times to fish. You're generally going to be pre-runoff, uh, with the exception of rain, uh, but snow melt should be still kept in check. Even into early April, you're going to have cold nights in the mountains. You might have some warm days. And those are going to be <clears throat> great times to wade fish uh, the Yakima as well as most rivers because the rivers will kind of remain in that low and clear uh, that low and clear um, uh Type. So it'll be you know pre-runoff, cold cold nights still. But we get into later April, May, June. We start getting warm nights, warm days. We get runoff. It's high and it's high and muddy, but the water is still very cold, and that can be very tough fishing during runoff like that. Snowmelt runoff is much more challenging than rain runoff. Rain runoff generally will cultivate worms uh, kind of from the shoreline, and the water will be warmer when it comes in. Snow melt, you know, spikes in volume from snow melt um, can be much colder and more difficult. So as far as CFS that I'm targeting, as a wade fisherman, I'm wanting it under 3,000 CFS at Umtanum. And CFS is going to vary based on your river. But go look at the flow charts, even if you don't have a trip planned. Um, try to find a fly shop that has helpful links and, and see what flow you're looking at. Um, so that you have a baseline, um, or or just get familiar with what a good wading cubic feet per second. That's the, how we measure the volume of water in a river that's flowing, 
and kind of figure out what range would be suited for your river. I think that's really helpful information to have. So it's a very kind of thought-provoking question as you plan trips for this upcoming year. And suited to our river here, what months are we talking about? We, we have a really unique flow pattern on our river. So we, we, we deal with normal spring runoff and the river runs pretty standard in the spring. Um, and we have some reservoirs that actually buffer us from the runoff a little bit that catch a little bit of that water in the headwaters of our river. But those are like 60 miles upstream from the canyon, 60 river miles, 50 plus river miles. So it's not like a tailwater, like our river comes out of a lake, but it's not like the lake's right there. Like it's 50 miles away. It's, it's a top feed reservoir. It's not like the Bighorn or the Missouri or the Green or other, you know, tailwaters that have a consistent water temperature. We're, we're not even close to the dam. So I want to explain that part. Uh, but our river runs really, really high in June, July, and August, like really high, like very, very difficult to wade fish. And that, that volume is going to be 4,000 plus cubic feet per second. I mean, this, the Yakima rips, it's big water, swift, pushy currents, pushy seam lines, challenging to fish. So June, July, and August, not good for wading here tough for wading here. We like to wade fish uh, February, March, April into May if the flow stays under three grand and then September, October, they drop the water volume. September, October, November is very good wading. So uh, good question. Um, the next one is just a time of day question and it just varies. In the summertime, I like to fish at dawn and dusk. Uh, in the springtime, I'm fishing primarily in the afternoons, you know, from noon on, hitting that warming trend in the water. Wintertime, I'm noon on. So the only time I'm fishing early in the morning is during the, you know, the dog days of summer. Um, but evenings can be very, very good in the wintertime because that's often the warmest uh, water temperatures of the day. And I just write the morning off. If it's, if, if it's cold in, you know, February and March, uh, I just write the mornings off. I'm only fishing kind of 11, 11 a.m. on. Uh, so yeah, that's a that's a very good question. The next one is just kind of focused on Central Washington. You know, what opportunities are there to fish within two hours? Um, are there spring creeks? Are there bass ponds? Um, he mentions uh, asking not to give away too much. We appreciate that. Uh, there is so much fishing, and this is true for everybody's backyard. There's way more fly fishing near you than you realize. There's a great quote that says, the, the purpose of famous rivers is to distract people from the really good ones. And that's, it's so true in so many cases. But we have a, another river system south of us called the Natchez River, which it doesn't have the big slabby rainbows like this river, but the Natchez has tons of public access. The entire thing has fishing opportunity. There's a little river called the Tyatan River that we like that's kind of small ball for rainbows. Um, there's tributary streams in our area. I'm not going to rattle off all the names uh, of them, but there's lots of tributary streams that I encourage people to really look through fishing regulations and um, look for areas that are managed as what we call selective fisheries here. They're, they may be catch and release. They may be bait prohibited streams wherever you're at, but a lot of times there's some quality fisheries that the the biologists have recognized that they're spawning populations of mature trout and they say of mature wild trout and they've they've begun to manage those without you know a lot of hoopla and letting the public 
making the public aware of it. So I think that's a great place to start is your local fishing regulations. And then we have a really unique situation in the Columbia River Basin. There's no, I mean, I there's hardly any place like it in the world. But when they built Grand Coulee Dam, it really changed and began to irrigate massive amounts of the agriculture land of the Columbia River Basin, which is, you know, 20 miles from us. I mean, we're in the Columbia River watershed, but the Columbia River Basin is considered like uh, what we call, <clears throat> excuse me, the Potholes Reservoir and um, a bunch of the seep lakes and um, the waterways out in that area are very, very unique. There are lots of lakes um, out in that Columbia River Basin that are quality trout fisheries. There's the historic ones like Nunley and Lake Lanise and Bobby and Mary and Quail and Beta. Uh, there's Lake Lenore's, the Lahontan cutthroat fishery. Uh, we don't get the fish size that they do at the Pyramid Lakes or Pyramid Lake in Nevada, but uh, it's a great fishery, very unique. That's a great spring fishery. Omak Lake has Lahontan cutthroat as well, and those get a little bit bigger than the Lake Lenore ones. And then as far as bass goes, I recommend if people want to get into bass fishing, I, th I think you should. But there, is some, there are places within 20 minutes of your house. I mean, small water is better. Just a few acres pond um, are great because then you don't deal with big bass boats and water skiers and that kind of stuff. Um, a little float tube or a one-person boat or a pram is all you need if you can't shore fish. So I think there's limitless opportunity there um, as far as that goes. But I, we, we did a 25 on the fly event this last couple of years, and I've just been shocked about where the little potholes and the little ditches and drainage canals of not only myself but other people that are in that event where we're trying to catch up the 25 species in a in a weekend, and it was a pretty amazing uh, realization that there's a lot more fishing out there and much better fishing in some of these places than we ever could have imagined. So uh, there's lots of places to go fishing, but hopefully, uh, Steve, you picked up a few of those that are in there, and uh, you can go um, make good use of them. But I think also the application of a good um, Google Earth or a mapping application like BaseMap or Onyx Maps is probably the, 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 one of the best tools the angler in the 21st century. So get one of those apps, use them on the desktop to do your research. And then uh, the other thing too is if you're a member of a fly fishing club and uh, you guys have speakers that do things by Zoom, uh, I present by Zoom uh, and Basically, I do it more or less by donation, so I'm happy to do it for fly fishing clubs. And if you have a speaker fee that you give out, great. Um, if not, uh, think of me like a musician playing guitar with a with a <laughs> with a jar out there for tips. Uh, but I'll help your club out, and uh, I do some seminars that are really good on learning how to plan fishing trips. So if you're a member of a club, you can hit me up and see if we can't get something on the schedule. But I uh, I have a a specific presentation I do about planning. So, but um, a lot of it has to do with how to best utilize some of the tools online uh, to hone in on some fisheries and do some e-scouting for your next upcoming trips. So, uh, yeah, very, very great question. We do a little bit of guiding in those areas, uh, but not a lot of guiding. But Steve, if you're specifically interested, uh, let's you and I have some private uh, discussion on what you uh, might be interested in. So, um, 
Now, on our on our guided trips on the Yakima River, this is his next question. There's a wade, there's wade fishing, float fishing, fish alongs, um, and you know what what can you expect on each? But the guided trips, if you're going to come out on a guided trip, there's a couple of different ways to go about it, and the the most and we'll go through a couple of layers of guided fishing here and this is applicable to anyone going on a guided trip maybe you're going to montana for a couple of days of guided fishing during the summer and maybe this is helpful for that not just somebody's patronizing patronizing reds the most important thing with guided trips is to make your goals or expectations really really clear you know without without trying to guide the guide um but if your goal is to do some wade fishing like that's just what you like Make sure you're extremely clear with the guide and say, I realize that, that having you row me down the river and throwing flies up against the bank is the most effective. I really enjoy wade fishing, and I also want a little bit of help getting better at my wade fishing. That's very important to convey to the guides because the guides, they're hardworking. Our guides are kind. They're going to they're gonna do everything they can to give you the best possible trip, and in their eyes, oftentimes, that's that's helping you net some big slabby rainbows. Um, whether it's rowing the boat for you or waiting or whatever, they're going to do what they think is going to be the best for your satisfaction. So just make sure that you explain to them, like you understand that maybe you really want to fish streamers that day. And they say, ah, it's, it's not the best day for streamers. Say, I totally understand. It's what I really, really enjoy doing. And I'd really like to try that. The, the the only negative feedback it seems like that we get on a guided trip, and it's very seldom, but it generally, as I digest these over 20 plus years of being an outfitter, a lot of times there's just a disconnect where, where the angler just didn't communicate well with the guide, and they say, oh, the guide used the same fly all day long, never switched, the fishing was slow and tough, and I'm thinking to myself, a lot of times when the fishing is tough, it's a little bit like the stock market in some ways where patience is your best weapon. The guide has plan A. They've, they have the best fly on there. They know based on hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of days on the water and literally watching hundreds of thousands of presentations. In their mind, they're processing, here's the angler skill set, whatever it is. Here are the conditions. Here's the flies. Here's what's been happening on the river Here's what the other guides, the guides communicate. They will text each other on the river. Um, so if the guide looks at his phone or is texting or something like that, I doubt they're updating their Tinder profile. They're messaging back and forth with the other guides to see what's going on on a tough day. And that's important to know that if a guide sticks with plan A, and I tell people all the time, once I start changing flies, Generally, we will rotate through a bunch of plan B, C, D, E, F flies, and then we will rotate back to plan A, and guess what we wind up eventually having our success on? As the angler gets more in sync with the boat, the anglers get more in sync with the currents and the mending and the presentation, it's usually plan A. So don't think a guide is ignoring the idea of changing flies. They just are mentally processing all of these other factors, and presentation is 90% of catching fish. So where this comes in handy for the angler is you can express to the guide, say, man, I just really want to try something else. I want to try a hopper dropper. I like fishing that. I like how it casts. I like moving that fly around the river. It's faster. I tangle and snag a little less. I want to do that. Or I like fishing one nymph or I like throwing streamers. I just like casting and stripping streamers. It's more active. 
totally understand that we might be at a disadvantage from a catching standpoint, but I'm on board and I'm just ready to mix it up. Just very, very clearly explain that to the guide and they'll be on board and they will work hard for you to do that. The other thing is too, a lot of times the guides have to balance. If So here's a common scenario. It's so hard for a guide to juggle sometimes is maybe you're listening to this podcast and you're a pretty good stick. You can cast good. You can do all these different things. You could catch fish on blueing olives when they're sipping in a real glass flat you know, area that are they're spooky. You can do that. You brought your buddy from work who is a total hack or you have a newbie with you. What happens is when we mix strategies, like we have one person throwing a streamer and another person throwing an indicator, the guide is now attempting to balance how he rows the boat for these two different programs. And then that that person who's a hack, you know, newbie, they're just getting started. They're fighting for their life out there, just trying to keep up. Now they don't have a casting mentor to get in sync with and follow the example led by the other angler. So it's it can be really a hard situation where if you invite a newbie, and that could be spouse, child, coworker, whatever, the guide really likes the experienced angler to use the same setup and strategy as the newbie because that's the newbie's mentor. We can only do so much with demonstration and voice instruction while we're handling oars. So that can be another challenge that a lot of times anglers don't see like, oh man, why did the guide have me nymphing the entire time and I really could have been throwing streamers or little dry flies or whatever. And a lot of times you might've even told the guide, hey, make sure my daughter catches fish or my son or my buddy Frank catches fish. You gave the guide as an angler customer very specific instructions to take care of Frank a lot of times taking care of Frank might mean that you're going to fish the same flies and style as Frank so that he sees what's happening. And if Frank sees you catching trout, you're catching trout on the same setup they are, which is a confidence booster for that new angler. So a lot of times there's some dynamics in guiding that customers may not see that the guide is, is doing. So just be aware of that when it comes to changing flies and strategies that you will have to explain clearly like there, you'll have to explain very clearly kind of what your expectations are in order to make sure that you get out of it. The other option is, hey, take me fishing. Let's go have some fun. And that's what eight out of 10, you know, seven out of 10 customers are going to come do. And then they're, they're kind of at the mercy of the guide, which is a great way to go. And then maybe peel off and say, hey, I'd like to streamer fish for 45 minutes today. Let's see what happens but I want to stick with it for 45 minutes because I need to get good at that skill. And, and I, want to, I want to do it for a certain amount, set amount of time, you know, realizing I may be sacrificing a few things in the, uh, in the process. I may not be mentoring my, my fishing friend I brought with me, uh, and I might be at a disadvantage given the conditions, and you might be, maybe you're at an advantage given the conditions. But just understand that when there's two anglers in the boat, that guide is trying to balance all these different things and, and kind of processing it. Um, so the guided fishing is the best The best thing to do there is, you know, go on the guided trip, um, expect to get taken care of. Our guides are awesome. I think all guides across the West, most of them are pretty great. Uh, and just be clear with your expectations and kind of what you want to get out of the day. 
um, without, without trying to guide the guide. Uh, we have another thing we call fish-alongs, which is really just a kind of a coached, somewhat guided experience, but it's coached. Uh, those are on foot. We do use boats for those sometimes just because we can more quickly access different wading positions along the river to provide coaching and wading experience. And um, the fish-alongs are a little bit different where the instructor might fish half the time um, and so that you can kind of see how it's done, how the approach is. And I do a handful of fish-alongs myself. We run two to three anglers in those, and those are really kind of a coached experience where the fishing is about... Again, to split things in half, the the priority of getting fishing is about 50% of the importance there, coaching being the other 50%, and then the instructor might fish approximately half the time uh, as well so that you can actually see the cadence in real time of how quickly do we recast, how fast do we move downstream, Do do we work our way upstream on this piece of water or downstream. There's lots of little hacks that take place. Some of the anglers that do fish-alongs, they'll do them once a month or every couple months with us um, just to, to stay current and getting coached. It's kind of like me downhill skiing. If I can if I can downhill ski and alpine ski behind a highly competent skier, I'm much more likely to, to get something out of it versus my buddy Jim, who's highly competent, just telling me what to do all the time. That's not going to be very helpful, but if I can chase him if I can chase him down the mountain, I'm going to get a lot more out of it. And that's an equivalent to kind of what our fish alongs look like. So um, next question is a kind of a guided fishing trip. What's the proper etiquette for fishing, tipping, alcohol, etc.? cetera? Uh, we kind of went through some of the fishing stuff. Uh, one is the, the guides are there to work. Um, they're there to serve. Uh, they're, they're going to do a great job for you. I mean, our team is, I, I truly believe they're the best guide team in the country. I, I fully believe that. I wouldn't have not have said that a few years ago, without a doubt. They're there to work. Uh, they're there to, to serve. And so they're going to do everything they can to get you into fish. As far as, uh, you know, clearly communicating your expectations, I think that's really important. Um I think uh, as far as their, you know, alcohol, bring bring beer on the boat. That's great. No problem. Bring alcohol. Whatever you want to do, it's your trip. You're on vacation. We remind our guides of that all the time. Hey, our guests are on vacation. Keep that in mind. They want to have fun. Keep things hospitable. Be polite. Don't be hard on them. Uh, you know, your ego shouldn't inflate and deflate based on the number of fish you catch. Just work hard and good things will happen for you and the guests. Uh, our guides, they'll drink a little bit on the river, but generally they're pros. I mean, they, they we're, we're in a very social environment, so the guides typically won't, you know, may, maybe a beer at lunch or something like that, or a beer at the end of the day, if that's the question regarding alcohol. Uh, but you're not going to find our guides drinking much, uh, you know, socially with you, maybe at the end of the day. But you remember, these guys are, they're, they're in that lifestyle every single day. As far as tipping goes... Uh, the $100 tip is the goal for all of our guides each day. I mean, they're going to go at it. They invest money in their equipment, their flies, their boats, their vehicles. Um, they're, they're shooting for that $100 tip every day. $200 tips are absolutely awesome. Uh, you know, we get beyond that. That's a pretty, pretty unique scenario. Um, but you know, you tip what you can, you tip appropriate, you know, not everybody's coming from the same, you know, economic background. So we're grateful to have whatever we can, but the baseline for us, I mean, we're we're investing in our equipment, in our time, and making ourselves prepared in a way 
that the hundred the hundred dollar tip is kind of the expert. All right, my giant golden doodle uh, just going absolutely crazy. My wife just got home from the grocery store. Um, yeah, so as far as tipping, that's kind of the baseline. You know, people are going to tip what's appropriate. Fifteen uh, percent would be pretty typical, and then. If the guide makes extraordinary effort, you know, people go on top of that. If you're losing a lot of flies, you know, as a consideration and, uh, you know, was the guide well prepared? Was there pre-trip, you know, planning? Um, was the boat clean? Is there ice in the cooler? Did they make absolutely certain that you were going to have the best possible time? So um, that's a, a solid question there. Um, as far as uh, you know, some of the other questions that, that are in here, uh, I think that I'm going to break one of the questions regarding knots and things kind of out into a whole separate podcast. Another question is, uh, is um, what about New Zealand or Labrador? Do we have any plans to offer trips to those destinations? Not at this time. That's a goal. Probably when my kids are grown up and moved out of the house, I'd like to go to New Zealand, but make it an extended trip and then maybe host a couple of groups while I'm down there for an extended period of time um, would be my plan for that. But I'm about five years out from that uh, when my youngest is, you know, out of the house and gone. So, uh, and then uh, the the last question uh, is just, what are my top 10 West favorite Western rivers? I don't have a top 10. My home water's here on the Yakima. <laughs> it's so great. Um, we have I don't know, 100 miles a river. We have 75 miles that are blue ribbon with over 100 miles that are fishable. So uh, my top 10 rivers are little individual little sections uh, of this river here. So uh, that's going to wrap up the podcast for today. Uh, thank you for listening. Email me with more questions. They're great discussion points and drivers. And again, I'm going to try to stay frequent on the podcast for this year. And if you don't follow us on YouTube, Instagram, uh, and Facebook, make sure that you jump over there and uh, you do that as well. Thanks for listening.